although what I'm going to talk about is um, <laughs> future, I would like to say it anyway, because it rounds out the uh, teaching which I've given, which has really started from the word go, the watching, the breath, to the stream entry, which I mentioned last night. Now, since there are some more steps to be taken, I'd like to round that out, even though at this point in time it may seem as if this is um, way in the future, it still belongs to it. And it may even give some pointers, which are helpful even for this time that we are pre uh, presently experiencing. Now, the stream entry, which I explained last night, has the effect of losing three of our ten fetters. They are like uh, chains with which we are bound to what is called samsara, the realm of birth and death, which means the coming and going, the constant arising and ceasing of our wishes and desires, the constant arising and ceasing of this me that is going to bed at night and then wakes up in the morning and is there again with all its sometimes rather negative thinking, or oh, do I have to get up again, and that type of thing. And this realm of birth and death, which is apparent, of course, when a baby is born, when a person dies, but which is actually happening from moment to moment. So the, um, we have ten particular fetters which are chaining us to this round and uh, the word feta is quite interesting actually in Pali is Rahula and uh, the Buddha before he became the Buddha had a baby with his wife and this baby was called Rahula the feta because even at that time he realized already that that is one of the things the attachment that is fettering one so anyway the three fetters, the three first fetters, which we lose at that time, is wrong view of self, the belief in rites and rituals, and skeptical doubt. Now, the wrong view of self that we lose at that time is completely uh, eradicated because we have seen a different reality. But again, and I mentioned it last night, and I mention it again, the person who has taken only this one step, only <laughs> it's not an only it's a very big step person who has taken that step um, although having lost the wrong view has not lost the wrong feeling only the right feeling only arises and I'm deliberately using wrong and right to make it easy to understand the right feeling only arises when the mind goes back to the experience at other times the person who has experienced it is still sitting there with me sitting inside and debating whether one should go here or there. It isn't intellectual anymore. The intellectual understanding is clear. There isn't anybody there. But because the feeling is so strongly ingrained, it doesn't immediately change. It needs more, um, more of the same experience in order to change that feeling. And that is the whole um, aspect of the division uh, in this tradition of having four steps. And in other traditions, 
there are words like um, I believe in the Zen tradition there are words like um, enlightenment always has to go on there are it doesn't immediately have that impact that we can have that feeling of nobody there so this wrong view is eradicated because the experience has told that there is uh, that it is possible to come to that moment of stillness where there is nothing and the moment after is such a relief and so much bliss and so much um, letting go of a burden that the mind can never forget it it will always be ingrained in the mind as a memory and can also never forget that the only real relief is the moment of having nobody there as long as there's somebody there you've got to take care of that somebody you can maybe compare that and I always try to give the similes which are uh, of our commonplace life compared to having a guest in your house you've got to look after this person might be the nicest guest in the world but he's got to be looked after this guest got to have his meals on time he's got to have a room he's got to have his uh, bedding he's got to be entertained a little bit I mean you can't just ignore this person it's very impolite isn't it well you're constantly having this guest inside which needs to be looked after of course you don't look upon this me as a guest you think that's a permanent fixture but uh, that's even worse having it as a permanent fixture it's got to be looked after so all of a sudden the moment came that one mind moment where this permanent fixture disappeared and you realize how nice nobody there comes right back of course and as I said the view is distinguished the wrong view is eliminated but the wrong feeling is not and that's why the instructions are that after this experience it is necessary to return to the feeling of the moment after the still point as often as possible to resurrect the memory of the moment after the moment after is called the fruit moment and to resurrect that memory as often as one can possibly think of it to be with that relief to be with that feeling of lo- losing the burden to be with that feeling of having no guest inside and no permanent fixture either the exact still point when it happened cannot be resurrected at will each past moment is only available once so that we cannot at will say well I'm remembering that now and that's not possible but the foot moment yes the foot moment can be resurrected at will because it is embedded in memory and the more often we do that first of all we feel more and more relieved and um, it only needs a moment of memory but the more often we do it the more it becomes second nature and the easier it will be to have a second step into that still point we could also say a second step into nothingness but uh, I don't know that that's very a very clear uh, description the, this is the first 
chatter that is lost, the wrong view. And the second one is the belief in rites and rituals. The belief that they actually can bring one to liberation. That doesn't mean that one can't light candles on a shrine, that one can't um, offer flowers to a Buddha statue. It doesn't mean that one can't chant some uh, chants which are elevating to the mind, but the belief that it could possibly have anything to do with liberation is totally eliminated because liberation has been seen for oneself as a complete loss of all that is usually existing and that loss is certainly not brought about through rites and rituals in fact at the time of experiencing that rites and rituals can have no place in it because if you do one thing you cannot do another and therefore one can know with certainty if one at least knows the Buddha's teaching that there where there is belief in rites and rituals the pathway has not been seen rites and rituals as a pathway are not what the Buddha taught rites and rituals are very often socially, culturally um, fitting to the country where they come from and in Australia I think one could say that rites and rituals are not very much in evidence so it has been the viewpoint I would say of most Western uh, practitioners that to import rites and rituals from other countries is not exactly what's going to get us liberated we have shed the ones that we were carting around for several hundred years which were embedded in the western culture and we don't really have to import new ones devotion and respect is something else entirely devotion and respect which can be shown and I will talk about that tonight which can be shown in physical action that is a very helpful thing as you might remember I have talked about devotion as the heart quality which makes it possible to commit oneself wholeheartedly but under no circumstances has the Buddha ever taught that rites and rituals can be used as a substitute for practicing calm and insight it's impossible to come to the results that the Buddha was trying to offer people so we see that quite clearly on that level we see it quite clearly on the level of the spiritual and the religious we may also have a connection to seeing it on a level of everyday life because that particular step may show us that we have actually adhered to some rites and rituals in our relationship to other people in our relationship which has been fixed on the belief who we are and these are very subtle differences in how we relate to people maybe we have been thinking of ourselves 
as somebody who knows nothing. So we have been relating with a sense of inferiority. Or we have been thinking we are somebody who really knows everything. So we've been relating with a sense of superiority. Or we have been relating as somebody who is too young to really have a, a word to say. Or as somebody who is so old that knows everything. All of these relationships are based on viewpoints which then harden into a hierarchical uh, structure which we don't even remember or know about. But when we take this step, we recognize it. And the opening, the loosening of this hierarchical structure within us takes place. Because we see everybody as only arising and ceasing, the viewpoint of that there are separate people has gone. The feeling not yet, but the viewpoint is gone. And the viewpoint of separate separation is gone. So that hierarchical structure that is so evident everywhere, even though we think, well, this is an egalitarian society, which it is compared to other societies, but everybody is equals, only some more so than others, huh? which is Animal Farm, a very good book. Um, it's, still it's still retained in the mind based on the viewpoint of me and you and them. And because that is now shaken, that viewpoint, the viewpoint is gone, but even the feeling is shaken because one remembers as often as one can, that inner relationship has become much more one of equal, hmm, equal opportunity. And with that, there isn't that feeling of inferior or superior. It just is. The whole thing just is. It's all over the place, but it just is. That's all. Now, so it makes an enormous change in one's inner being. Skeptical doubt. This is the point where skeptical doubt is eliminated. With the sustained application to the meditation subject, second sector of the meditation, it was shaken, the skeptical doubt. I can do it, it works, the Buddha must be right, but here it's eliminated. Now one has seen for oneself, that's the way it is. And one has followed the Buddha's instructions, nilly-willy, because one didn't get them anywhere else. Even if one didn't want to, that's what one had to do unless one is a spiritual genius and they do not appear very often. People like the Buddha or Jesus don't appear that often. They are spiritual geniuses, so we've got to follow something. So here are the instructions. Having followed the instructions and having had the result which was forecast by the Buddha that this is exactly what happens, there can be no skeptical doubt. No skeptical doubt in the teachings of the Buddha no skeptical doubt in the veracity of the Dhamma and no skeptical doubt in the fact that the transmission is correct. Because the transmission is based upon that what is so often bandied about as lineage. We don't use the word in this tradition at all. Lineage appears as if there's somebody giving something to the next one. The transmission is correct because it has worked. There's no question about it. 
and the transmission is of course from the Buddha to this day and it has come down to us through the written down discourses of the Buddha so what better transmission and yet it's constantly being argued about and very often being put down there is nothing to put down once one has exactly experienced it this is it one has a transmission in other words one has a teaching that's all you get is a teaching and as one gets the teaching one has to do it and as one does it one knows it so skeptical doubt is totally eliminated and when that is eliminated something else arises that utter love devotion respect and wholehearted commitment a person who has experienced this can no longer vacillate it's impossible to vacillate now mind you there are people who have the love and devotion respect and wholehearted commitment before they experience this they're lucky because they'll have an easier path but then there's all that going on in the mind which says well maybe and how to and where to and this uh, guru says something else and they've got a better lineage and oh dear anyway <laughs> the own personal experience is the one that tells one that's the one that says look I've done it I know it and the mind that knows it cannot fail to have enormous gratitude it can't fail now gratitude is one of the spiritual qualities which the Buddha said is extremely rare in fact he said in one of the little discourses of the Anguttara Nikaya in the book of the three that there are three rarities in, in humanity one is a person who will do a kindness one who will be grateful for it and the arising of a Buddha now can you imagine how rare this must be because the arising of a Buddha is extremely rare so how rare must it be to have people who do a kindness and those that are grateful for it the Muslim mantra has no problem with that none whatsoever because the whole psyche has been reconstructed and that reconstruction that has taken place has just taken one mind moment and that one mind moment has made that reconstruction possible so that doing a kindness is a matter of course one doesn't have to think about it and being grateful to the great teacher the Buddha and the great teaching the Dhamma is a matter of course because one has had such relief so the skeptical doubt which the Buddha compared to going around in the desert with no provisions and no uh, road map that is completely gone and with that with that sector gone there is a feeling of expansion in the heart the heart which has been quite um, probably closed or one could say maybe um, it's more 
a feeling of being of being able to open on the proper occasion in other words when there's something there that one can really love uh, that is gone the widening and opening of the heart becomes much more discernible and the person that has done that if they have um, close people that they live with will undoubtedly those people that live with them recognize a, a quite a market difference there's no way that that can be um, overlooked so this market difference which also comes about from practicing has its culmination really at this point and then the difference is so easily discernible that it's un- that one can't doubt it the loss of skeptical doubt changes the contracted heart the heart that is judging and and uh, discriminating to a heart which is open and giving so it is an enormous step and having taken that step i mentioned already one is then called a noble one an arya a r i y a but nobody goes around saying that because that would not be in keeping with that kind of experience now we have 10 fetters all together and this is three and from that you can also already know that greed and hate are not being touched however the person who has done this will have less greed and hate because the wrong view of self is gone they do not have to protect themselves so much and because of that there is less greed and hate it isn't by any means um even half or anything like that but it's not quite as passionate when the hate is still passionate and the greed is still passionate nothing has happened the passion when one starts yelling at people or when one is really unhappy for a long time because somebody is doing something wrong to oneself or when one must have something that passion is gone there's still greed and hate but the passionate part of it is gone so having re remembered re reconstructed the this fruit moment as often as possible in one's mind and continuing one's meditation and one's spiritual practice in everyday life there's no reason why one can't come to the second step most people um will find that a little difficult and usually return to another course to do that because the environment that one lives in in the world is not protected enough but be that as it may there is a second step now the first one is called stream entra person who's done it the second one is called a once returner the reason for these names are this the stream entra is said to have a maximum of seven more lifetimes to have to finish the job 
from uh, the experience of people who have done that, they are bound and determined to do it in this life. Whether they will or not is hard to say, but because the burden of the self has been seen to be the greatest difficulty that one can encounter, that determination is within them. The stream mantra, by the way, also said never to be able to break one of the five precepts. And I will talk about the precepts tonight. And then you will know exactly what is meant by that for those of you who haven't had that kind of teaching about precepts. So I will leave that go at the moment. Also the stream mantra can never take another teacher except the Buddha. Because having had this enormous benefit, one isn't going to look for something else. It's absolutely impossible. And it's likewise impossible to stop practicing. It's just not possible. Not necessarily only sitting in meditation, most people would do that, but practicing in everyday life, all the time, to eliminate the rest of the hindrances. And this is something that is also very important and I like to explain that in a little more in detail because it applies to everyone, not only to the three mantra. And that's called reviewing knowledge. And that's a very important thing. The reviewing knowledge means, these are technical terms, and it doesn't hurt to know them because they are mentioned in books uh, that you might be reading. And at least you know what's meant by them. The reviewing knowledge means that one looks at one's own defilements and one looks at those that have gone. That's all it really means. Now, the stream mantra has the duty, everyone who has had a past moment has a duty afterwards, and one does it spontaneously, uh, afterwards to have a look. What has changed in me? What do I no longer react to or what do I react to with less force? That is the criteria of proving to oneself one has actually done it. Although the teacher can confirm it from the words that are spoken, it's still the onus of the recognition lies on the meditator. The teacher can only go by the words that are being said because the teacher and the students usually don't live together. If they do live together, it's very easily discernible whether this, the person has changed and is different now. But actually the onus of recognition lies on the meditator him or herself. So that means reviewing knowledge, which means looking at one's own reactions, one's own desires, one's own wishes and so on, and have a look and see whether there is less greed and hate. Whether there, in the case of the Spimantra, whether the wrong view of self is actually gone, whether the skeptical doubt is completely gone, and whether rites and rituals have any meaning. And by the same token, having a look at the defilements remaining. Because the defilements remaining, and every meditator should do that, the defilements remaining are one spur to practice. Who can 
push one onto the pillow when there isn't a course going except the understanding that the defilements make one unhappy. So this reviewing knowledge is actually only mentioned in the text as being something after the past moments, but it is equally valuable to do that as a meditator every once in a while, every week, every two weeks, whatever, every month, having a look what has changed, but with absolute and complete honesty to oneself, not wishful thinking. Wishful thinking is a great uh, danger because it means that we're putting on rose-colored glasses and don't want to see the world as it is. And if you remember this step on the path that brought us to this passion and to liberation is called the knowledge and vision of things as they really are, as they really are. Now that also includes not thinking about oneself negatively. It includes only thinking of oneself objectively. What are the defilements remaining? What are the defilements that are gone? Recognition, no blame, change. That's all it is. Recognizing objectively. And as we look at ourselves objectively, it's of course much easier if one has already seen that there's nobody there. We can look at this person as if it was a statue. And this statue has been made by a craftsman, a sculptor. And so we are the sculptor and the statue. And so we look at this statue, which are our characteristics, and have a look to see whether this statue is really having flowing lines, complete beauty. And if we see anything that needs correction, if we see anything that is still not in complete accord with the sense of beauty and harmony, then we gently and carefully chisel away at it. If we were to use the hammer, we'd break the whole statue. If we don't do anything about it, it's going to remain in the form it's always been. So we gently and carefully chisel away at it. The next step, the ones return. The best time to do this step into the still point is after the jhanas. And as I explained last night, and I will repeat it now, it needs a determined and insightful mind state. It isn't just wanting to get rid of me or going somewhere which is interesting. That doesn't help. The determined and insightful mind state needs to include the understanding that has been gained that the idea of me is a delusion. It's an illusion. It needs to include the willingness to be nothing. 
Now I explained that already last night on the way to the stream entry but exactly that same determination has to come up again for the next step. It doesn't happen automatically. If it did happen automatically, we'd all be enlightened by now. In fact, the whole world could be enlightened by now if it were to happen automatically. It just doesn't. What does happen is that through the path of insight and calm, which we can go in our meditation, the understanding arises that all we are, all we think we are, and all we are trying to be is all on the level of worldly mental conclusions which do not have absolute truth in them. So at the point of being ready, and one only oneself knows when one is ready, so one has to try several times most likely, on that point of thinking one is ready to go again to that still point because the mind is still not satisfied with the result. The mind still knows that the me is constantly re-arriving in everyday life, wanting to go again to that point where there is nothing. The determination has to arise again that I'm ready to give myself up completely. I'm ready to experience that which contains absolutely nothing, which is the underlying absolute reality of all that exists. That what exists has been created out of craving. And if you read Genesis, under that aspect, you'll find it there. Creation is out of craving. And all that which has any manifestation has come about like that. Underlying it all, there is nothing. And if you look at that, first there was the word, mental craving. Nobody's saying anything. In that nothingness, nobody's talking to anybody. Who's there to talk to? If you read the teaching of Christianity with the underlying understanding of this pathway, you'll understand a lot of the stuff in its right way. It's all symbolic. If it's taken literally, it makes no sense whatsoever. But when it's symbolically, it's perfectly clear, lucid, and exactly the same. And that's the beauty of the spiritual path. If one understands one, one understands them all, they're all the same. But one mustn't get sidetracked. One mustn't get sidetracked in the things which are nice-looking, nice-sounding, which are colorful and ex exciting. If you get sidetracked into that, lost. And most people do. It's not easy to have the clarity of the one-pointedness which really leads out of everything. So, being ready to go to that which is the underlying absolute reality and which contains absolutely nothing means that oneself is ready to be nothing. That's got to be there. And then, after having had any of the concentrated states, whatever 
there may be one sends the mind off and the symbolism I was using was like a carrier pigeon but it doesn't matter just send the mind off and the mind is to go to that which is nothing and it may and it may not remember I told you this uh, simile of the tree that grows at the side of the river on the bank with the branch of selfhood hanging over the river with the rope of materiality the body and with the momentum of practice catching a hold of the rope and swinging across the river to the other side okay that's got to be done again now the second time one appears to be swinging a little better a little further it's the same action the mind goes to the still point but it appears afterwards the still point is not cannot be explained because it's a moment of nothing but the moment after the fruit moment appears to have gone a little further <clears throat> as if the jump has gone just a little further which means a little deeper there's a little more profound result from it the result that comes is not eliminating any of the fetters unfortunately but the result that comes is a great reduction in greed and hate greed changes to preference and hate changes to irritation it's a great relieving aspect these are the results now the fruit moment the moment after having taken that step is one of even greater relief than the first one and not, not so much surprise because after all one's been there once before it's like going back to Paris and recognizing a few of the streets one's been there once before the first time it all looks completely strange everything is totally new one hasn't got a clue which corner is next but the second time it's a little more familiar so it isn't quite as surprising and the feeling of wobbliness which comes from that jump across the river is more quickly dispelled one has more a feeling of being at home in this new country so the fruit moment is the one which tells one what one has done and although it is exactly the same procedure the second time the effect is quite a bit more profound and then one has to use reviewing knowledge again in order to find out has my greed really been reduced to preference and has my hate really been reduced to irritation because irritation and uh, getting angry is a vast difference there can be a feeling of being irritated that is one is still being touched but getting angry is impossible it's just irritated and the mind is irritated well yes one knows about that but there's no anger and that's having done it the second time the person that has done it is called a once returner 
because it is said that such a person only has to come back once more to the human realm which is a sort of relief but the once returner isn't going to be very satisfied with that because he's had enough of the whole thing and having practiced up to stream entry now that's another point of uh, importance and interest is the safety spot having been having achieved that stream entry one is born as a stream entry although the person doesn't know it there's no way I mean unfortunately we don't come with a little notebook in our hand which says what we've done last time and so we could you know take some advantage of that yet the psyche that is being reborn is the psyche of a stream entry and such a person starts practicing probably at a fairly young age but although I have also heard of um, others which start sort of in their 30s but they have quick results and also a stream enterer who gets reborn and it's not so common mind you because a stream enterer will have strongest determination to get finished with it in this life but of course not every determination can be realized but a stream enterer will have fairly quick results and understand the Buddha's teaching immediately no question hears it once and says of course and not only that but hearing it and saying of course the mind also says I know all that how come I didn't do it very interesting there's that recognition I know all this and yet the mind has to be refurbished with it because death and birth in the human realm is so traumatic for the mind that it forgets everything and has to be reconstructed but it's very easy for a stream enterer to then remember what the mind already has actually as part and parcel of its karmic resultants so a stream enter can will be born as a stream enter this is the only thing the only spot on the path that cannot possibly be lost now having practiced and having had some kind of insight it is not necessarily a guarantee that we're going to bring those with us again now obviously the next person we don't know anyway who that is so maybe we don't care that's okay maybe we don't care at all that's why the stream enter wants to do this so the once returner is one who comes back once but having recognized the difference between greed and hate and preference and irritation the momentum of practice is enormous he won't such a person won't slack off because there's just the, the difference is so great that it becomes every time a feeling of real letdown if when the defilements arise the reviewing knowledge is very important at this stage because we can see from that exactly where we're at that is this corner I'm talking about when we have a wonderful road map use the Revidex and you want to go somewhere and you haven't got a clue what corner you're at you can throw the whole Revidex away 
it's totally useless unless you know what corner you're at then you can go from there so this is here even doubly important to know exactly where we're at it's very important at every stage of practice there is no stage of practice where knowing the own defilements and the one's own eradication of them or lessening of them is not important it's always important that's why this reviewing knowledge really applies to every state and every stage sorry every stage of the pathway well the one fraternal being absolutely determined to get this over with then becomes a non-returner hopefully a non-returner is a person who's done this for the third time a non-returner unfortunately has to come back in the highest realms in the Brahma realms if the practice has been the practice of the jhanas the jhanas are the vehicle to go to the Brahma realms these are states of consciousness mind you I told you about that there are 31 realms of existence and they are states of consciousness the jhanas are elevated states of consciousness and therefore a person who has been practicing with those elevated states of consciousness will return in an elevated state of rebirth the last four realms are called the brahma realms brahma means god realms and for a person who is a non-returner and dies as a non-returner will have to return there and finish off there unfortunately the Brahma realms are being the God realms are of extremely long lasting uh, quality so that it can take eons but that it is said that one can be reborn in the Brahma realm when the Janic experience is very good very solid without being a non-returner but if that's the case and one doesn't do anything about one's um, enlightenment experiences and it's highly unlikely that one will because there's not no teaching going on there and no dukkha to spur one on one can right, fall right down again to any of the lower realms even the lowest so only the stream entry prevents that that's the cutoff point that the cutoff point where that is no longer possible the lowest one can get to will be the human realm which is low enough but anyway it's not too bad but um, below that is much worse so one can get to the Brahma realms with the solidity of jhana practice and people who do jhana practice and as I told you before that's done in all mystical states in all religions and they do it without insight that's where they wind up and that's then sitting on the right side of God the God realms and that's what people talk about when or at least that's what they have learned but have not really seen the symbolism of paradise having that close connection and that's when one winds up in the Brahma realms now it's very nice there apparently but um, the Buddha said um, it's also not worthwhile getting there because that too is impermanent although it's terribly long-lasting and that's why in the God realms 
the viewpoint persists that those who are there and they're only minds they're not bodies they're minds they are everlasting immortal everlasting omniscient all-knowing all-pervading and this is the idea of the gods now the Christian Judeo tradition makes one god out of that all other traditions make many out of that it doesn't really matter it's also impermanent but because it takes such a long time to show its impermanence it isn't recognized the Buddha warns against trying to get there he warns against um, being satisfied with being a non-returner because of the length of time that may be needed in order to come to full liberation yet of course it sounds very attractive doesn't it and it sounds extremely attractive when one still has that last remaining sense of me and that's what the non-returner has now the non-returner by doing the same step the third time removes only the, the two factors of greed and hate no more greed, no more hate there's no irritation it's not being touched can let go of anything if it's offered that's fine if it's not offered that's just as well doesn't run out and try to get anything it's perfectly okay the way it is but there are five fetters still remaining because we've got ten altogether and the five still remaining are compared to the aroma or the scent that clings to a flower there was one monk whose name at the moment I can't remember whom the other monks uh, revered as an arahant as a fully enlightened one and he said uh-uh the me idea still clings to me like the scent clings to a flower so there are five factors left and two of those are one is the wish to be reborn in the Brahma realm and the other one is the wish to be reborn in any of the Deva realms now the Brahma realms are only four the highest and the other Deva realms of those there are 31 minus 9 22 so there's a wide array of different realms of course the person who has that clinging to the Deva realms will of course think of the higher realms not the lower ones the lowest of the Deva realms is called the Bhuma Devas Bhuma means earth they're the earth Devas that live in cabbages trees, flowers, earth anywhere where there is life there is a Bhuma Deva and I believe that I don't know that much about Aboriginal lore but I do believe that the Aboriginals were aware of that and are called these the totems that they are connected to is that right? because the Bhuma Devas are quite apparent to many people Fintorn was built up on that children see them without any difficulty uh, not every child will say so but it is my personal view that most children see them I had a little girl on my arm once that was three year old uh, here in uh, Queensland and uh, all of a sudden she exclaimed oh how pretty and I said, what's so pretty? You know, I thought she saw some flowers or something. Well, look at that little doll. Oh, there's many little dolls to be seen. And uh, I said, where is it? She said, it's sitting right there in, in the tree. The tree.
between the first and second branch. I said, what, what's it look like? So she gave me a very nice description of a, of a doll that was dressed up very prettily and that she talked to them. She had a conversation. I only heard her side, of course. I couldn't hear what the other one was saying. And then she said goodbye to this uh, little doll and, and that was the end of that. And I said, uh, was that really there? She said, you didn't see it? <laughs> I'm afraid I didn't. <laughs> so it's no wonder that children often think we're a bit dense. Huh? <laughs> so it's not unusual that the Buma Devas can be seen by people or even by grown-ups and uh, that they are part and parcel of their whole um, ambience in their lives. But that's the lowest realm of the devas, and then their higher realms. So these are two of the uh, fetters still left, two of the five. One is the one, to be, one wants to be reborn in the Brahma realm, so it's really nice to be in paradise, sit on the right side of God. In other words, be God yourself or have any of the other Deva realms which one can read about, how nice it's there. There is a wish-fulfilling gem to be had there. It says all you have to do is rub it a bit and you get everything you want. And so the um, idea of the me still being in the non-returner, all this sounds attractive. The other three that are left, one is called conceit. But it doesn't mean that that person now is very conceited. It means that there is the conceiving of me. It's very fine and very subtle, but it's there. And the other thing that is still there is restlessness. Now, restlessness is one of the five hindrances that every human being has. Now, here, having still have it, still having it, at this time uh, means that it's a very strong uh, characteristics in humans and um, it arises because of the fact that of course the non-returner also is not totally satisfied because the me pops up here and there a little and thus some has some thoughts and reactions which are not totally peaceful so there's still that little bit of restlessness inside, in the, in the non-returner. And the other, the fifth one is called ignorance, which means nothing other than the fact that that person still has not completely let go of the me idea. In other words, the person that is a non-returner, having had three steps into Nibbana, three experiences of Nibbana, will still think, I am a non-returner and that is of course against the possibility of being nobody so that non-returner then has to really make a determination a really strong one it's very common that a non-returner rests on his or her laws because life is very simple there's no greed there's no hate it's very simple. Whatever a non-returner wants in the mind is going to happen because it is so simple. The wants and the, the uh, uh, wants are so simple and the uh, peacefulness is so great compared to other people that life is really 
very, very easy. So to get from the non-returner to the Arahant, which means the fully enlightened one, takes enormous determination, but it also takes enormous interest. Because we've only done half of the whole thing. Ten fetters, five are left. And yet, three times been in, in that state of Nibbana, of still point, of nothingness. Sometimes, and there was a very famous monk in uh, Thailand who was a non-returner, and one of his fellow monks, uh, who was an Arahant, said to him, well, look, come on, do something. And he said he was, was 75 at the time, he said, I'm too old. I don't have the uh, stamina anymore. So one should do all this when one is still very strong and has that physical stamina. Because the physical stamina is also part of it. A non-returner still becomes aware of the fact that there is some, that are some raw edges. Which are me. Me are the raw edges. And these raw edges sometimes hurt a little. And since everything else goes so easily, so why have these hurt? So hopefully continues to practice. If such a person practices, there's absolutely no reason why full enlightenment shouldn't take place. It's just one more step into the same still point. But the still point at full enlightenment becomes a complete letting go, an experience of an utter and profound nothingness which is more profound and more impactful than any of the previous ones. Because the word still point indicates that there is a moment of stillness when nothing happens, nothing, absolutely nothing. But on full enlightenment, that absolutely nothing that's happening is changed into that not only does nothing happen, but the person who's doing it is transformed into that nothingness. That's about the best way I can describe it. And the result of that is, of course, that there, is none, there are none of these fetters left. The raw edges are gone. It's a very marked uh, change for the person, him or herself. It may not be so apparent uh, for someone else because most people aren't that sensitive. Again, the reviewing knowledge on all steps, the reviewing knowledge after the once-returner, after the non-returner, and also after Arahant. Now, to explain the difference between Buddha and Arahant. The Buddha is an Arahant. He is fully enlightened. But the Buddha has become self-enlightened. And that means that there was no teacher to teach him. He had to find it for himself. And all Buddhas find the Four Noble Truths with the Noble Eightfold Path by themselves. The same teaching, but find it by themselves. That's why they're called Buddha. Samma Sambudho, the self-enlightened one. But an Arahant is an enlightened person that has followed the teaching and has become enlightened through the teaching. So, to become an Arahant, all one has to do is follow instructions hmm. and practice. <laughs> but to become a Buddha, that's a little more difficult. In fact, it is said that one has to make 
um, a vow, a, a very a, a great vow to become a Buddha. And it is said that uh, this Buddha that we are, uh, whose teaching we have, uh, was um, called was the sage Samedo at the ti- time of the Buddha Dipinkara. And at the time of the Buddha Dipinkara, the sage Samedo made this vow. I want to become the next Buddha. And it took him something like 500 lifetimes to accomplish that. But of course, already as a sage Samedo, he was already a highly developed person. It doesn't say in the scriptures how highly developed that he was called a sage at the time. So then it took another 500 lifetimes to get there. These are canonical, uh, canonical literature and I have no way of knowing whether that is really so or not. So I'm trying to preempt that question. Um, I couldn't possibly know. So the, um, but it is really not necessary to have that kind of ambition or that kind of determination because to be an Arahant means that one has exactly the same qualities as a Buddha, only following the teaching. And this is far more likely for most ordinary people than anything else. I'll leave you a few moments' time to ask some questions. Yes. Would the Arahant still take birth? That's another another myth. Um, I'll tell you a story. There was a wanderer at the time of the Buddha. His name was Vachagotta. And he was a wandering ascetic. And he came to the Buddha one time, and the Buddha was asked this many times, and said to him, Sir, please tell me what happens to the enlightened one after death. And the, uh, does he still exist? And the Buddha said, No. And then the Vachagotta said, Does he not exist? And the Buddha said, No. And then Vachagotta said, Does he neither exist nor not exist? And the Buddha said, No. And then he said, does he either exist or not exist? And he said, no. So then what you got, I said, now look, uh, sir, I have exhausted all possibilities. Uh, what does happen? So what you, uh, Buddha said, what you got, I go and get some uh, sticks and make a fire. So what you got, I made a fire. And then the Buddha said, okay, throw some more sticks up. And so he did. He said, now how is the fire going? He said, oh, it's going very well. And he said, all right, now stop throwing sticks on. So he stopped and the Buddha said, so what's happening? So he said, oh, well, now it's going out. Oh, it's gone out now. So the Buddha said, well, where did it go? Did it go forward, backward, up, down, right or left? No, of course not. It just went out. The Buddha said, exactly, that's exactly what happens to the enlightened one. It just goes out. Because there are no sticks thrown on the fire of the passions anymore, so there's absolutely nothing that can burn and bring up the um, craving to be reborn. It's totally impossible. There's no way that this can happen. However, there's a little bit of hope in that. Namely, the enlightenment energy, which is enormously strong, remains within infinite consciousness. And anyone who has the ability to get out of that own personal little mind there and have a connection to infinite consciousness can have that too as 
a support system and in some places on this earth of ours that enlightenment energy can be felt quite strongly and that the place where I personally have known it to be felt extremely well is at Kusinara which is the cremation place of the Buddha but the person who is fully enlightened cannot return because there's no person there to return the fully enlightened one cannot return there's nobody there to return so the whole myth and mystic about this is the rebirth and that that rebirth you've got to figure that one out yourself <laughs> yes Does he know his past life? Is that what you're saying? Mm-hmm. Yes. No, not necessarily. Well, I mean, everything else the Buddha said was okay, so why shouldn't that be okay? Besides, you can experience your rebirth every morning and your death every evening, so it's not really a big deal, you know. Anything else? Yes. Uh, No, I didn't say that. In fact, there isn't always a living Buddha, unfortunately. But when there is a living Buddha, there's only one. There's never two at the same time. And what, what the Buddha said was this, that this teaching that he has given will, no, that's what I'm now saying is in the commentary, that this teaching that this Buddha has given will last for 5,000 years. And then it will take eons until the next Buddha arises, however long an eon is, I don't know. And uh, the next Buddha is going to be called Buddha Maitreya, and Maitreya is the Sanskrit word for metta, loving-kindness. And it's going to take a long time till this next Buddha arises. But within those 5,000 years, right in the middle of that, there will be 100 years when the teaching of the Buddha will have a great um, upswing. It will be far more distributed and more people will be able to hear it. And after the hundred years are over, it will continue to go downhill until after 5,000 years, the words Anicca Dukkha Anatta will not be heard again until the next Buddha arises. Now we are at the moment in the 35th year of those hundred years. So there is a greater distribution of the Dhamma, but also there is um, a greater um, difficulty to be able to, see, to hear the true Dhamma that also there because of the fact that there's a greater distribution. So there isn't always a Buddha, no. That's why one has to do it this to lifetime because who knows when one's going to come back. Who wants to be around for eons? Just imagine. Oh. <laughs> yes, Christopher has your hand up.
No, I only know that one. Yes, there probably are others, but I, I only know that one because I've been there. Um, I, I haven't been everywhere, but and I've been to other of the places where the Buddha was, but I couldn't. Uh, I only felt it there. A very strong feeling. Hmm? In North India, the Buddha lived in North India. <laughs> I'm not very good on geography. <laughs> I can't tell you exactly. <laughs> yes. Yes, uh, some people find that. Now, I think that everybody will find that there are certain times of the day that they can uh, meditate better. And uh, also we have this biorhythm which might tell us something about our ability to practice better. But my most um, important experience in that respect has been the fact that the positive mind brings with it so much energy that the physical disabilities are overcome. And the negative mind takes away so much energy that it becomes almost a physical disability. And that's been my personal experience of it. So, but there are, of course, everybody I think finds a time of day they can do it best, and also at times of the month when they can do it best. And that very much, um, uh, could very much have a relationship to the biorhythm. Enough. Mm-hmm. It's been diminishing. The further away we get from the life of the teacher, the more it diminishes, of course, the more diluted it becomes. Now there's a revival, and then it starts getting more and more diluted. And in fact, what he said was that the feeler, the moral conduct, it will be getting so much worse that because of that there will be no concentration, and if there's no concentration, there will be no wisdom, which is sila samadhi panya, the three aspects of the teacher. I wouldn't count on having another 65 years in your body, it might be a little far-fetched, but uh, the best time to do it is at this moment, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, once a person realizes extremely interesting, 
What is the question? The question is, the masters that have large followings and they are breaking precepts, are they stream mantras? Is that the question? Yeah. yeah. Well, actually, having a large following uh, is more likely if the precepts are not being kept. It's much easier. Life's much easier that way. It appears to be much easier. And it's much, it appears to be much more fun or maybe more comfortable. So it's much, much more likely to have a great following if the precepts aren't taken very seriously. Yeah, so I mean, I can appreciate that, but it seems to be something that's like one in my mind. Um, I mean, it's very difficult to dismiss them as just being sharp, or just being And but they're they're breaking they're breaking the precepts yeah. mm, quite openly. They don't even try to hide it. Otherwise, um, you wouldn't know it. Person, yeah. mm. I'm sorry, I don't know. The Buddha took the precepts pretty seriously. Yeah. <laughs> I can't tell you. Yeah. I mean, these might not be Buddhist teachers. No. They're not. What? Well, Sorry, don't know. <laughs> yes. Very Absolutely. Uh, the more one does for others, the um, less the this egocentricity has a chance to be uh, the main center of attention. I mean, every person who's not arahant has egocentricity. It's just not possible to be otherwise. But if one really goes out to help and really wants to help, there are always these moments when that is uh, very much subdued, and that's very helpful. And it makes very good karma also. And it's uh, that good karma making uh, appears as happiness in the mind. And the happy mind can meditate. So it has all, only, only uh, benefits. Well, right livelihood that you get, that implies being paid for. Um, that has to be, that's a basis that you don't do something where you would break the precepts or help somebody to break the precepts. That would be right livelihood. But this, what um, Philippa is mentioning, would be something extra where you really go out to, to try and help. And even if you get paid for this kind of helping profession, it is the kind of spirit in which you do it, which makes it uh, either very, very good karma or not. I mean... I'm sure all of us have maybe experienced nurses in a hospital who couldn't be bothered with you. 
and then others who were very kind and sweet. So, you know, it depends on how one does it. Yes. Yes. The word makes me cringe. This is engaged Buddhism. Nothing else. Then if you go out afterwards, after you've had this engaged Buddhism, and try to help people, great. You make good karma, wonderful. But the teaching, that's it. This is an engaged Buddhism. I, 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 I don't know if it's like Buddhism, well, I know for example in the Mahayana faith, that um, being involved in politics is, is like a political activity. Yeah. And that's what I was thinking about in the Buddhist teaching, whether there's anything remotely like that. Yes, for monks and nuns, not for lay people. For lay people, I mean, he had, he had, um, uh, his disciples were kings, ministers, um, generals, army generals. Of course, this army general gave up his job then after a while. <laughs> didn't, didn't sit very well with him anymore. But he had lots of these people as his uh, disciples. But for monks and nuns, politics is an absolute no-no. How about uh, some of the monks in, in certain stages during the Vietnam War that self-immolated? Who knows? Who knows? I'm sure I don't. I don't know whether that... I can't say. Something went on that was uh, in their mind that brought them to that. I can't say. I don't know. Yes. Mm-hmm. We have a Vinaya, which are the rules for the Sangha, for monks and nuns. And the Vinaya is very extensive, very, seven, uh, sorry, five volumes. Yes. <laughs> Full of stories. How each law, how each... Um, law that was given came about and uh, some of it is quite uh, comical how some of these monks and nuns misbehaved and so the Buddha had to give this uh, order not to do this and one of them uh, in there is that one doesn't take any part in the running of a country but one can give advice now the Buddha gave advice to the king but strictly on the Dhamma basis not on a worldly basis. In other words, the, the, to keep away from worldly saying, yes, it's a good time to start a battle now, or it's very good to make, to do this or that in the world. But on a Dhamma basis, he did give advice when he was asked. So this is part of the Vinaya. And the Vinaya is really only for monks and nuns. It has no bearing on a lay people's uh, um, behavior because there are so many rules and uh, there are um, 227 for monks and 311 for nuns 
and some of them are very cultural and socially uh, imbued and have really have no validity because we don't have that culture and that social customs here. Alright, yes? Arya. Yeah, but not in the Buddhist sense. The Aryans were also the invaders into north into northern India, and they were as um, a tribe which was uh, fair-skinned and very warlike, it seems. And uh, way back when, <laughs> and that's where that uh, idea came from that the Aryans are the superior race, which brought Germany to its knees. The same word. It's exactly the same word. Yes. Yes, that's right. It is the same word. But here the Buddha uses very often because as I said the only one language is only one. He uses the same word and means something entirely different. He says the Aryan is a noble person, that's the one who's made that step. And not the North Northern Indian invaders. <laughs> They're not for anything. So that happens very often in his language. And that's also where our present-day um, confusion of that word came from.